Good morning, Gopher State Roundup. My name is Carrie, and I'm a very grateful member of this worldwide fellowship of the Al-Anon family groups. This is going to be a long ride. <laughs> gratitude, gratitude, gratitude. Hi, y'all. Um, I so appreciated, uh, first of all, thank you to Connie and to the entire committee. You guys put on a party, let me tell you. And uh, yeah, we're having a good time already, and, and I really appreciate the hospitality and my hostess. Uh, Sheila, we're having a really good time so far, and I appreciated Teresa last night stepping up and starting off with the fact that she was feeling really nervous and uncomfortable, because I'm feeling very nervous and uncomfortable. And um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm also not a morning person, um, and, uh, and I don't know why, I just always think of like the Al-Anon speakers as the luncheon person, and, uh, and so then when I got the schedule and it showed me at 9.30, I thought, uh-oh, and uh, so I went and had lunch with two of my best friends in, in Al-Anon that day, and I told them, and in unison they went, oh. <laughs> Those same friends did both send me emails last night, and I was really appreciative of that. Um, and then my sponsor's husband, who's a very spiritual man, and he's been in Al-Anon since he was in Alateen, and he's very, very old now, because um, anybody that's older than me is very, very old. And um, <laughs> and uh, uh, he told me that God doesn't get up before 10 o'clock in the morning, so you're on your own for the first little bit. Um, and I'm reminded of the first time that I was speaking, and I was very, very nervous, and my friend Vince came up to me and lovingly placed his hands on my arms, and he said, um, it's okay, Carrie, just be funny and don't screw up. <laughs> so I tell you these stories because if you're new, stick around, and you too can have friends like this. <laughs> I want to thank all of the AA members who are here this morning and who support family recovery. I really appreciate that, and I know that there's a lot of parts in the country where people are kind of like us and them, and uh, I really believe that it's a family disease. Uh, I suffer from the family disease of alcoholism, and what that means is that when people I love drink alcoholically, I lose my mind. And, um, and so it's really important that I come here, and I'm very grateful to all of you who so lovingly and graciously share the 12 steps of AA with all of us Al-Anons. And uh, the other thing that I always like to say at the beginning is that I hear a lot of AA members get up here and say, you know, if it weren't for AA, I'd be dead by now. If one more person had tried to help me, I'd be dead by now. And I don't hear a lot of Al-Anons say that. But I'm here to tell you that I believe that this disease is just as deadly for us. You know, it's funny, in the, in the big book, my sponsor and I were reading, uh, and I'm a big book Al-Anon, and if you don't like that, that's okay. Um, you don't have to be. But we were reading in, in the big book, and in the, in the fourth death stuff, there's like 11 death threats. You know, it's infinitely grave. To drink is to die. There's like 11 death threats. Like, this really is a life or death thing. But a lot of Al-Anons are like, oh, you know what? He stopped drinking, so I don't need to come anymore. And I can tell you that... Um, all the times that I contemplated suicide, all of the times that I got into a fight with my alcoholic and ended up with stitches in my head and had to go to the hospital, um, all of the times that I got into a car with him and he was too drunk to drive, but I just didn't have it in me for another fight. This disease is just as deadly for us, and it's so important. I, it, it, I love to come and talk about this stuff because I forget. My life is, is really good today for the most part, and I forget how, how deadly and how dangerous it is, and so it's important. Complacency is my biggest enemy, and so it's really important that I come and I talk to you guys. Um, and also, I'm my favorite topic. Um, so it's really nice to get, to get to talk about me for an hour. It's fabulous. Um, I have an AA friend who has a theme song, 
And, uh, and I adopted it many, many years ago, and it goes a little like this. I, 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 I. I, me, me, I, me, me, I, I, I. So, uh, <laughs> we talk about the selfishness and the self-centeredness of the alcoholic, right? Yeah, we also have the disease of alcoholism. And, uh, and, and I feel like I am just as selfish and just as self-centered as any alcoholic out there. But I just like to hide mine as helping. And, uh, <laughs> I've never done anything for anybody just because I'm a nice person. I do it because I want you to owe me, and I want you to need me, and I want you to love me. And, uh, and so all of my helping is really to serve me. Um, so there you go. And, uh, and I guess with that, I'm just going to tell you uh, in a general way what happened, what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like today. And uh, I'm the product of an alcoholic marriage. My parents were teenagers when they discovered that they were pregnant with me. And back then, what you did is you got married. And, um, and my dad was already, uh, he was only 18, I think, and, and he was already really in the depths of this disease. And their marriage only lasted for three years. Well, I don't know. I was three when they got divorced. And um, he divorced my mom and immediately married another woman with a little girl. And in my little child mind, what I saw is that he left us to go be with them. And that kind of set up this um, idea in my head that I was second best. And this really became a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, what, what we hear as children uh, so much shapes who we become. I ended up graduating second in my class. And I was co-editor of the school newspaper. And I was co-captain of the cheerleading team. And, uh, and this really became a self-fulfilling prophecy, and it is something that still sits with me today. Uh, my sponsor and I have been talking a lot about letting go of old ideas, and, and um, I celebrated uh, this last May, um, I celebrated 22 years in Al-Anon. And thank you. Because I started when I was five. Um, <laughs> No, actually, this this was a really cool year to me because um, on May 5th, I turned 44, and on May 6th, I turned 22. So on May 7th, I had one more day in Al-Anon than out, and that was really awesome. Um, so hopefully I'm, like, even now, right, and I can start to grow. Uh, so um, anyway... Um, Back when my parents got divorced, you know, it was in the 70s. There was not, like, joint custody. And we lived in Houston, and my dad lived in Dallas. And so I would go spend a week with him at Christmas and two weeks in the summertime. And, um, and that was really the extent. I don't remember talking to him on the phone. I probably did. Um, but that was really the extent of our connection. But I just thought he was the cat's pajamas. I, I thought that the sun rose and set from him. And when we would go visit, it was a party. It was a party all the time. There was this pizza place called Shotgun Sam's, and they had live bands and music and, and arcades and beer and pizza, and, and we would spend so much time there. And I thought it was because it was summer, or it was because it was Christmas, and we're, you know, we're celebrating. Everybody's together, and it's a party. No, that also happened because it was Tuesday. Um, or because it was Arbor Day. And, um, you know, yay, it's raining. Oh, look, it stopped raining. Let's go celebrate. And, and that was just what happened. Alcoholics drink. That's what they do. And, um, and we had a really rough time um, growing up. You know, it's, it's, the disease of alcoholism is so powerful that even though I only spent three weeks a year 
in active alcoholism, I was still really drastically affected by this disease. And I was not an abused child. I was very loved. My mom is one of seven children, Catholic Irish alcoholic family, and uh, CIA. And, um, and she was the first one to get divorced. Um, at, at this point, six of the seven have been divorced at least once. So, because that's what happens in alcoholism. But she was the first one. And, um, and so I was really, I mean, I was really taken in by my grandparents, by my aunts and uncles, and just loved and treated uh, with just so much um, tenderness and gentleness. I don't ever remember being hit or anything like that. And, you know, I'm here to tell you that there was a, a movie a couple of years came out, a TV movie, about Lois, and it was called Love is Not Enough. And I am here to tell you that love is not enough to save you from alcoholism. Uh, if it was, you would have a different speaker this morning, um, because I really was loved and adored. My mom uh, remarried when I was 11 years old, and, um, and I was not happy, but I didn't tell her that I wasn't happy. I told her that I was really happy for her. And, um, and I think, you know, on some level I was because she seemed happy, but I was afraid. I was afraid that one more time I was going to be an outsider. I was afraid that one more time I was going to get cast aside. And when she got married, I, I did end up feeling like an outsider in that family. But there was a part of me that just really, really wanted to be part of a family. And, um, and we would go places. We would go to church or we would go to restaurants. And I would say, I bet everybody's going to look at us and think we're a real family. They had a, they had a baby girl right away and uh, the love of my life. And uh, I said, I think we're, everybody's going to look at us and think that we're a real family. And one time my stepdad looked at me and he said, nobody's looking at us and thinking anything. Which is true, right? I'm always so worried, like when I walk into the room, what are people going to think? They're not going to think about you at all. They're busy thinking about themselves. Nobody walks around going like, a real family, look at that over there. It doesn't happen. But what I heard when he said that was, we're not a real family. You are not a part of this family. And that's what I grew with. Um, the night of my eighth grade graduation, my dad almost died. And I don't know the whole story. Oh, by this time, we were living, my, my mom and my stepdad and the new babies, we were living in Colorado. My dad was still in Texas, and I was still doing the one week at Christmas time and two weeks in the summer. And, um, and I was pretty miserable in the home. Um, really, some of it was probably just because I was a teenager, I was hormonal, but, um, but also, you know, being affected by alcoholism. And my dad almost died, and I thought, um, this is my chance. And I, I had my first geographic. I told my mom, I need to go live with him. He could die any time, and I don't really know my dad, and it's time for me to go. And uh, she, she did not want me to do that. And she tried to stop me. Um, and it was the first time in my life that I remember consciously making a decision that other people weren't happy with, because I always tried to do what would make you happy. And... Um, and I was very firm that I needed to go. And I think something in me knew that I, I really did need to go. I'm not sure, I'm not sure why, but I feel like I really did need to go at that time. And, and, uh, and I, I don't know the whole story about my dad. I know it had to do with his drinking and his smoking. Um, but I said, I want to come live with you. And they said, okay. And that was the first time that I really remember living in active alcoholism. And it was like pouring miracle grow on all of my defects of character. And like my Al-Anonism blossomed in that year. And, um, and we would wake up in the middle of the night. I had, um, you know, there was the little girl that had already been born. And then my uh, dad and my stepmom had had another baby girl. And so were the three, there were the three of us. 
And we would wake up in the middle of the night to them screaming with one of those alcoholic fights. And initially, at the beginning of that school year, the other girls would come into my room, because I was the oldest, um, kind of. And so they would come into my room, and we would sit on my bed, and we would hold each other and, and, and hug each other and comfort each other in the night. And um, by the end of that school year, we would all just stay in our own beds and cry by ourselves. Because that's what alcoholism does. It destroys these families. It destroys relationships. It destroys little girls' lives. And, um, and at the end of that school year, I thought, I need to go out of here. And, um, and so I made another geographic back to Colorado. And my, um, my dad and my stepmom were um, filing for divorce. And uh, my stepmom and her best friend told me that it was my fault, that that's, I was the reason that they were going to get divorced. And they, I moved back to Colorado, and they ended up not getting divorced. And so I took that on for a little while. And I know today that that's, you know, it wasn't my fault that they were getting divorced. They ultimately did end up getting divorced. And, and I don't even blame her anymore for blaming me for that stuff, because I understand that, you know. When I, as an adult, when I was living in active alcoholism, I was looking for those reasons. It's got to... The reason that we're having problems can't be alcoholism, because I don't know what to do with that. But if it's the little girl, we can send her back to her mom. If it's the job, we'll just change jobs. If it's our friends, yes, we have stupid friends. Let's get new friends. And those, I I can deal with those things. I can solve that problem. But I don't know how to solve the problem of alcoholism, right? And um, so I got back to Colorado, and I basically decided that my dad was a terrible dad, and that I did all the work in the relationship, and um, he didn't deserve me anyway. And so I wrote him a letter basically disowning him. I was 15. I wrote him a letter basically disowning him, telling him that he was a terrible dad, and that uh, um, if he wanted to be a dad at some point, he could let me know, but I was done doing all the work in our relationship. And um, But what happened at that point is I was a, a sophomore in high school, and I was very angry because... Living in alcoholism makes children angry. But I didn't know I was angry because I grew up in Texas. And that's not something that people are, especially little girls. Uh, you know, like, you, there's no dealing with your anger. You're just happy. Not too happy. Like, what are you so happy about? Just regular happy. <laughs> right? And that's it. And so I didn't know what to do with all of this anger. And so what I did... Um, is I beat up girls and slept with boys. And that was my solution. <laughs> and it actually worked quite well for quite a long time. Because um, I found, you know, when I, was, when I was bullying another girl, and if I could make her tremble, if I could make her cry, if I could make her leave school for the day, call her mom and ask to be taken home, I felt big, and I felt strong, and I felt powerful. And I did that. And when I was getting attention from teenage boys in those few minutes, and they were teenage boys, so it really was just a few minutes. (laughs) In those few minutes, I felt beautiful, and I felt loved, and I felt whole. (laughs) Um, Thank you for your laughter, Kelvin. (laughs) I got to tell you guys, last night uh, when we got here, we're just going to digress. And, and this happens, so just come along for the ride. It happens. Um, my husband's nodding his head. 
So we had dinner with, with uh, uh, a few people at our table, and Kelvin and uh, Adam were joined us. They came in from North Dakota, and, um, and Adam told us some good news, and Sheila and I started clapping, and, uh, <laughs> and Kelvin said, oh, great, we've lost him for the weekend. He's going to follow the al who clap at everything he says. <laughs> So that's what we do. We encourage and understand our alcoholic relatives. Um, <laughs> anyway, so so in high school is when I met my first him, and uh, and he was amazing. He was an artist. He was dating one of my best friends, and he had been in rehab three times already. And one time I was looking through uh, uh, his artist sketchbook, and there was a suicide poem. And I thought to myself, he wouldn't feel that way if he were with me. And so I made it my mission to make him mine, and I did. And, uh, and we had a typical alcoholic relationship. We broke up for the first time after six days. And, um, and that established a pattern. We were together for either five and a half or six and a half years. I'm not really sure which one. I go back and I try to figure it out, and I just can't figure it out. We were together for a long time, and we broke up probably about every six days. Um, but we always got back together because he was my soulmate. And, uh, and I could see his potential. I knew that there was a future there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's... Uh, he was, he was wonderful in the beginning. He really was. He was funny, and he was charming, and he was talented. I love alcoholics, and I love that I come to Al-Anon, and you tell me that it's okay to love an alcoholic. That's the only place that this happens. Everywhere else, people are like, well, why don't you just leave him? And they didn't understand. He was my oxygen. How could I leave him? He was what made me alive. And, um, and in the beginning, it was fantastic. But, um, but then it takes a funny turn. And uh, the drinking just got really out of hand. Um, very young, we broke up, we got back together. We broke up, we got back together. I graduated high school and left and moved to Texas to get away because I, I realized at that point that I couldn't seem to stay away from him if we were in the same town. So I moved to another state. And, um, and in less than, by the end of that uh, school year, he was down there living with me. And we broke up and got back together all the time. One time... Um, I moved out of our apartment while he was at school. <laughs> and uh, two weeks later, he was back on the lease with me in my new apartment. And that's what we did. And we, we, uh, we moved every six months because that's when the lease was up. And we'd be like, you know, we should move because this place has, like, really bad juju, I think. And because uh, we lived there. And that's why. <laughs> It had bad juju. But at the end of six months, like, the police knew us really well, right? And, um, and our neighbors knew us really well. But you didn't know that they knew us really well because they would not make eye contact, you know? <laughs> like, oh, there's the crazy people. And, um, and we just, like, we need to go. If we can start over, again, that, I, can fix, I can fix the bad apartment. I can't fix alcoholism. I don't know how to fix the problem of alcoholism. But if it's the apartment, we can just move. There's lots of apartments. And, um, and it just followed us around. And I'll tell you uh, what happened for me. It was the, it was the night of my 22nd birthday party. I was, it was just before I turned 22, the night before I turned 22. And, um, and we, ha- we were having a big party. And uh, he gave me a bottle of tequila. Oh. And then he drank it. 
And, uh, yeah, good man. Um, but we were going, there was a bunch of us, we were going to a comedy club because there was a comedy club within walking distance and everybody, you know, you can have a party, everybody gets in for free and the birthday girl gets free drinks and we didn't have to drive. And, um, and that was a good thing, right? And, uh, so we went, we had, we had a really good time. Our friends were fun. They were probably all alcoholic because that's the other thing that happens. You know, we surround ourselves with other people who drink more and act crazier so that we can go like, oh, thank God we're not like them. <laughs> And uh, so we, we had this night, and um, <clears throat> at the end of the night, we all went back to our apartment, finished off whatever alcohol might have been in the house, and then everybody started to leave. And I hated when everybody started to leave because that meant we were going to get in a fight. And, um, and we used to fight a lot. And I, um, I was never an abused spouse or mate. I played one on TV. Uh, you know, if you came up to me and said, what's going on? I'm like, oh. You wouldn't believe what he did to me today, you know. But um, he was tall, but he was thin. And, uh, and, and he drank heavily, so he'd get real off balance, you know, so I could go with him. And, uh, and we, w- we would fight together, and the police would come, and sometimes he was a little more beat up, and sometimes I was a little more beat up. But this is just what we did. And, um, and so everybody left, and I knew we were going to get in a fight. And, uh, and we did. And what happened was um, I took a pair of scissors and I stabbed him in the leg because it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. And the police, you're the only one laughing. (laughs) The police came, and I'll never forget this cop and what he looks like, and his name was Joe. And he comes to the door, because our neighbors called on us, as they always did. Um, He comes to the door, and he says, what's going on? I said, oh, Joe, he's hitting me again. And he looks at Dave, and Dave's got, like, blood coming out of his leg. And he says, well... It looks like that whatever happened here was at the very least mutual. So I could take you both to jail, or I could take you neither to jail. And I thought the neither to jail was definitely the better option. And, uh, and this, was, this was Texas in 1991, you know, where it's like, oh, that's, that's a personal problem. We're not going to get involved. You know, the police didn't get involved with stuff like that. I'm sure today I would just go to jail. Um, so i got to keep coming back so I don't stab anybody else in the leg with a pair of scissors. Um, <laughs> And actually, that's when, when my husband, my husband's uh, here with me, which is really nice. And when we started dating, and we weren't supposed to get married, it was just going to be a summer fling. He was only 23, and I was 30, and that was a really good match. And, um, <laughs> and we, were, we were having a great time together, and, and I was pretty open with him. You know, this was what was fabulous about this relationship. Oh, did you guys follow? We made another turn. Um, <laughs> So this is what's fabulous about this relationship is I didn't expect it to last. So I was really honest from the very start. Like, even in, even in recovery, I was like, oh, I'm going to be really honest. I'm going to do things differently this time. But I was still doing it with a goal in mind. I was doing it, I'm going to do things differently so that it will work out. I was still not leaving the results up to my higher power, right? So in this relationship, I already had decided that it wasn't going to last, so I didn't have anything to lose. I could tell him anything, and I did. Um, and now he knows it all, uh, which is why he gets to come on a weekend like this, because I don't have anything to hide. But we were dating, and, uh, and he says, so how come, how come you're an Al-Anon? And because uh, and, uh, I didn't really have any active alcoholism in my life at the time. And so I told him the story about stabbing my boyfriend in the leg with a pair of scissors. And I said, since I've been coming to Al-Anon, I have not found it necessary to do that. And, uh, and he said, you're going to a meeting tonight, right? 
and he has been very supportive of my program ever since. <laughs> he is, uh, I love this man. He is as close to a normie as anybody that I've ever met, but he did marry me. Um, so water sinks its own level. There's something there. And, uh, um, but anyway, so, um, so the cop came and he took Dave over to a friend's house. He said, he said, I said, can you just take him to a friend's house for the night? And he said, yeah, probably because he didn't want to come back. And, um, and so he did. He took him over to a friend's house. And I woke up the next morning. And the only way I know how to describe this is um, I've heard it said that if you stick a frog in boiling water, it'll jump right out. But if you stick a frog in regular water and turn on the heat, it'll sit there and boil to death. And I woke up that morning and I looked in the mirror and I had become that frog. Every ambition, every dream, every hope that I had ever wanted, I had said goodbye to. And little by little, one day at a time, I turned into this woman that I didn't even recognize. And that even my family didn't know what was going on inside my home. And I was too embarrassed and ashamed to tell them. And little by little, everybody that mattered to me slipped away. I even I had a cousin that I grew up with. Her name was Amy. Her parents are, are 15 months. Our moms are 15 months apart, and they were very close. And at one point, you know, my mom was a single mom, and her mom was a single mom, and we all lived in the same house together. And as uh, as young women in our late teens and early 20s, Amy and I had shared an apartment, and she saw this relationship. She knew what was going on, and. Um, and one time, I had shown up at her work um, needing stitches in my head from a fight that had gotten out of hand. And, um, but, you know, I drove to her work to have her drive me to the hospital. So, I mean, it, you know, drama. Um, but after that, after that event, um, she wrote me a letter, basically disowning me, and said, I love you, and I'm not willing to let you die. And this was somebody that I had grown up with. And so here I was on my 22nd birthday, and I was utterly and intensely alone. And the phone rang, and it was my dad, who I hadn't spoken to in many years, and who was sober for a year and a half in AA. And he was calling to wish me a happy birthday. And for whatever reason, I told him what was happening. I told him everything that was going on. And he just kept saying, that sounds like alcoholism. That sounds like alcoholism. And I don't even remember the entire conversation, but I know that the next day I found myself in an Al-Anon meeting. And, um, and I'll never forget that meeting. It was magical. It really was magical. And I, and I really did feel at home right from the start. I felt like I could be truly myself. I cried through the entire meeting. I could barely say my name. Um, I still cry at almost every meeting. Um, all my little sponsees tease me about it, but they cry too. Um, but, but it's different today because my, my tears aren't from grief and despair anymore. They're usually from gratitude and joy, and that's really a blessing. And, um, and I remember that they passed a basket, and, um, and I went to put, I saw everybody putting money in, so I went to reach into my purse, and the woman next to me put her hand on mine, and she said, it's okay, honey, this one's on us. And, um, and after the meeting, uh, you guys invited me to coffee, which was astounding to me because, remember, I was alone. I didn't have anybody that wanted to spend time with me. Even the craziest of our friends weren't hanging out with us anymore. So that meant we were the craziest of our friends. And, um, 
And I, I didn't go to coffee because that was, you know, I don't know you people, you're kind of weird, but, but it was really nice. I was very touched. Uh, I thought it was lovely. And, um, but there was, a, there was a woman there, and this was, remember, this was Texas in 1991, so she had big hair. Yeah. And, um, and she had blue eyeshadow. And, uh, and she looked me in the face and she said, You are so lucky to have found this program so young. And I wanted to punch her in the face because I was not feeling like a lottery winner. Okay? I didn't come because Baskin Robbins was out of my favorite ice cream. And, uh, and, uh, but I understand. I understand today what she meant by that. And she said, honey, if you want your life to get different, there are five things you need to do. She said, you go to meetings, you get a sponsor, you work those steps, you be of service, and you sponsor others. You do those five things, your life will get different. She didn't even promise me that my life would get better. And I was like, okay, I'm in. That's fine. I'm totally, I'm willing to do those five things. And, um, and I feel really grateful because I came into this program, and I did not come to get him sober. We have a lot of people that come in, and there's somebody talked about, you know, just tell me the answer. Just tell me how to get the, you want me to eat blueberry pancakes on Tuesday? I will do that. You, whatever it is, I can wear red on Fridays at 5 o'clock. If that's going to do what it, what it takes to make him sober. I didn't do that. I knew that I was the common denominator. I knew that every relationship that I had ever been in had alcohol and me, and I knew that I was the problem. And so I feel really fortunate for that. I also knew um, that... One of the things that um, they talk about in AA is that um, the, the, um, the first drink is too much, and the first drink will get you drunk, and 100 drinks is never enough. And I knew that, too, because, we, you know, we would go on these spells. Um, when I was with Dave, we would go on these spells where he would, he would get sober. We'd have a fight. I'd throw him out of the apartment, and he'd come back, you know, very remorseful. And, uh, and ready to change, and he'd be dry. He's like, I'm, I'm not going to drink anymore. I was like, okay, that's perfect. That's all I want. Actually, I didn't even care if he drank. I just didn't want, didn't want him to drink like he did. To help him with that, when we were dating, um, I created a drinking chart for him. <laughs> Stay with me. And newcomers, you should really pay attention to this. Because... <laughs> Because if you're not out of plans yet, here's a new plan for you. So I had, I had heard that if you drink every day, you might be an alcoholic. And I had also heard that if you drink more than two drinks a day, you might be an alcoholic. So what I did is I designed a, a chart where he could drink on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Two drinks each of those days. But I also, I'm a very loving, giving person, and I wanted him to be able to relax on the weekend. So he actually could drink on Fridays and Saturdays, both. But I had also heard that it takes the body approximately one hour to metabolize an alcoholic beverage. So on Friday and Saturday, and, you know, we want him to celebrate and relax, and it's the weekend and stuff. So he could even have more than two drinks. He could have up to four drinks on Fridays and Saturdays, but no more than one drink per hour. <clears throat> and then maybe he wouldn't black out. And uh, as you can imagine, it was a very successful plan. Yeah. Um, anyway, he would, so he would go on these spells where he would just quit drinking altogether. And then, like, I remember we went to this uh, restaurant. It was, like a, it was like a big giant boat. And this was right after Foster's Lager came out. And uh, he orders the Foster's Lager. And I was like, 
what are you doing? You don't drink anymore. And he's like, oh, it's just one drink. It's not going to be a problem. And I thought to myself, yes, it is. We're going to end up right back where we were. You know, and they say here in Al-Anon, if nothing changes, nothing changes, right? I didn't even know what that meant because it doesn't make sense. Um, <laughs> and this, this is actually, and, and I'll get to this. This is, if anybody's sponsoring and you're new to sponsoring, all you have to do is say things twice. <laughs> You'll know when you know. You don't know what you don't know. And if nothing changes, nothing changes. Oh, and here's, here's my new favorite one. I actually say this to my sponsor all the time. It is what it is. That's all you have to do, seriously. And they'll be like, I love my sponsor. She's so wise. <laughs> actually, last night, this was great. Last night, I get, I get back to the room, and I'm checking my email. And I have an email from a sponsee. And the subject line is, I hate it when you're right. And I thought, I love it when I am. <laughs> And I'm so glad she finally knows it. Because I've been trying to tell her that for a long time. Anyway. Oh, I don't even know where I was. Um, we were talking about the drinking chart. Oh, lady with the big hair, yes. So anyway, so I started, I, I started trying to do those five things, right? And I, I couldn't do them... Um, too much because, like, you know, I didn't really want to get a sponsor because I didn't want to have a conversation with you. I could go to the meeting. You know, I'm going to show up five minutes before it starts, and I'm going to leave five minutes when it's over. And I'm not going to actually talk to anybody. Um, but I am really, I just, I, I didn't have it in my schedule for more people to help. So I couldn't get a sponsor um, because I just didn't have time to help somebody that much. And um, <laughs> newcomer thinking, right? And, um, you know, I looked at my watch before I started, and then I completely forgot what time I started. <laughs> so I don't know how long I was supposed to talk. Uh, I'm, but I'm my favorite topic. You guys have like two, three hours, right? Okay. So, because I have a lot of stories. Um, anyway, um, so so my boyfriend was going to go get sober, uh, and I was going to go to Al-Anon. And the way he got sober is he went to New Mexico, um, where his brother was, and each morning they would go and buy a case of beer and then go fishing and talk about how they both needed to quit drinking really badly. And, um, and it was somewhat less successful than Alcoholics Anonymous tends to be. But I didn't know any of this. I didn't know any of this. I thought he got sober. I, I thought that that's what he did. So he came back. And, um, and when he came back, I couldn't go to as many meetings. And, um, you know, because I needed to be there for him and make sure he was doing what he was supposed to be doing. And, but my, my dad had invited me and him to move to California. My dad, you know, he was in, the, he was in AA and he was in this process of trying to make amends. And I had dropped, I had dropped out of college, um, so that I could work full time and pay for him to go to college. I used to be so mad at him for that. And then my sponsor asked me, uh, the first time going through the steps, my sponsor said, did he ever ask you to do that? No. That was my own brilliant idea. <laughs> so, so I dropped out of college. And so my dad wanted to help me get back into college. And I think it was just part of the amends process. So I moved to California. Me and, and, oh, and at this point, he was dry. Like, he was dry, dry. He was still smoking pot. But that was okay. Because we didn't get in a fight <laughs> when he smoked pot. He was just kind of like, hey. <laughs> so as I was, eh, he's smoking. He wasn't drinking. And we weren't fighting. We weren't throwing things at each other. And so we moved to California. I'm living with my dad. Um, and my dad's like a year and a half sober. My boyfriend is dry. Um, my dad's girlfriend, uh, living girlfriend, was less than a year sober. And, um, 
in my not-so-humble opinion, would have benefited from an Al-Anon meeting or 200 from time to time. And, um, and I was there, and I was brand new in Al-Anon. So it was crazy house, and I didn't know what to do. And so I just started going to meetings. And God bless my higher power. I got to all the meetings where people were working the steps with a sponsor. They were of service. They were sponsoring others, and they were doing the deal. And I didn't know what else to do, so I was just going to, to meetings. And finally, for the first time, I really started doing that. And I actually ended up getting a sponsor because there was a long-timer. Um, I, I don't say old-timer because people say that I'm an old-timer, and I don't like the word old. Um, so I say long-timer. So there was a long-timer there, and he came up to me, and he said, Carrie, when are you going to uh, stop hanging around the program and actually get in the program? He said, you need to get a sponsor because you can't fix your broken mind with your broken mind. And I was like, and what was funny is I had, I had been trying to do the steps. And the first step, like I said, the first step I felt like I really got. I felt like I had uh, understood that principle before coming in here. That's why I came in here. This was the last step, stop on my bus ride, you know. And, um, but I got really stuck on step two because it talks about the insanity piece. And I was like, he's crazy. I've been holding everything together. I don't understand this. And then when I started working with a sponsor, we started talking about things. And I was reminded of this uh, one time where I um, broke all of our dishes. I stood in the kitchen and I was mad at him and I was barefoot. And so I started breaking all of our dishes, all of our glasses, all of our bowls, all of our plates, because I was going to show him how mad I was. Now, I had bought everything because he didn't have a job. And, uh, and I ended up replacing everything because he didn't have a job. And uh, I showed him. Uh, and, you know, and that was kind of like, that was that insanity piece. Like, oh, maybe that's what insanity means. You know, I'd, I'd heard the, like, the, the standard definitions of doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And, and that, that didn't really hit it for me. But when I started looking at these things, you know, throwing him out of our apartment in the middle of the night, night and, like, throwing all of his clothes out of the second-story window, and then when he was finally like, like, get out, get out, I pay the bills, you don't belong here, get out, and he would finally be like, okay. And then he would start to leave, and I would grab him and, oh, please don't go, I need you so... And, uh, and that's crazy behavior. I have a friend who talks about <laughs> in her 90. I really wanted this to be my story because it's, so, it's such a great story. In her 90, she was trying to stop him from driving away. So she was on the hood of her, his car, like holding on. There's that space where the windshield wipers go. You can tuck your fingers in. Okay, newcomers, did you hear that? There's a place where you can tuck your fingers in. And he's driving and she's sliding back and forth on the hood of the car. And this is what we do. This is our insanity, right? So, um, so anyway, so I just, I, I feel really blessed. I was surrounded by all of these people. And I was in this relationship, and I didn't really know what to do with it because it really wasn't, he wasn't getting into, Alan, in, into AA. He was just dry, and it was very uncomfortable and unpleasant um, to be around. It. And also, I mean, when he was drinking, at least I knew. Like, okay, he's drinking. We're going to get in a fight. When he was dry, it just sort of happened when I wasn't even expecting it. And, and, uh, and, and people would say things like, don't leave five minutes before the miracle. And I was going to all of these meetings where, you know, the, the wife had gotten into Al-Anon, and then eventually the husband hit. She was able to detach and stop enabling and all these wonderful things that you guys talk about. And, and, uh, and he would get into AA. And then they had these little Alateens. And they would have the house with the, you know, the, the parties would happen. The baby showers would be there. And I wanted that. I wanted that. I wanted that. And they'd say, don't leave five minutes before the miracle. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to stick around. And, uh, and I would talk to my sponsor about it, like, I don't know, I think maybe it's time to go. And uh, how do you know? And she would say that thing. 
You'll know when you know. <laughs> but sure enough, that's exactly what happened. I woke up one day, and um, and what you know in this process. I was doing the deal. I was going to meetings, and I was starting to, um, there's, we talk about the three A's and stuff. I heard the three G's. Get off his back, get out of his way, get on with your life. And that's what I was doing. Finally, somebody had taught me how to do that. And that's exactly what I was doing. And so it made it a little bit, you know, it made it easier for me to detach with him because I finally had a life. And one day I woke up, and the question came into my head. What if he never gets sober? How much longer do you want to do this? And the answer was clear as a bell. It was not even for one more day. And I was done. And it was the first time that I was ending that relationship um, because he needed a drink. And I needed to be with somebody who didn't need to drink. And it wasn't out of fear. And it wasn't out of anger. And I wasn't throwing his clothes out of the second story window. I just knew that it was done. And he didn't believe me because nobody believed me. They're like, yeah, I, you broke up. Right. I know. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see you guys at the party on Friday. Okay. And, uh, you know, nobody believed me. But I, And I also, I didn't have to convince anybody. I just knew. And I was okay with it. And um, and I was I was able to let him go. And uh, shortly after we broke up, he got sober. <sighs> I told my friend, it's like, I ate the broccoli and somebody else got the dessert. They do that all the time. They do it all the time, right? And... Um, <laughs> And this man, this man actually, and but it, it, he was sober for about 14 years, and um, and he had he had scoliosis, and so he had a, a back surgery, and then and he was sober in AA, and he had a common law wife, and uh, from from what I hear, he never came he never came back to me and made amends to me, um, <laughs> right? Because it's about me. Remember, selfish, self-seeking, self-centered. Um, so I, I heard that he was sober for a long time, but he had this back surgery, and he ended up getting hooked on his pain pills. And instead of reaching out and talking to people, he just started using again, and he started drinking again. He got a new girlfriend, and um, and he was a blackout drinker. And apparently what happened is um, they got into a big fight, and she was like, okay, I'm out of here. And he said, you walk out that door, I'm going to kill myself. And uh, she was like, whatever. And so she left, and uh, he put a shotgun to his chest, and he pulled the trigger. And this is what alcoholism does. And this is after 14 years of sobriety, you know. And, um, and his, his death certificate might say that he died from a gunshot wound to the heart. But we know that he died of alcoholism, you know. Think about how many deaths are out there that aren't identified as alcoholism, but really are as the result of alcoholism. This disease is so powerful, it's the only one that I know of that can kill people who don't have it. That's pretty phenomenal. Anyway, um... So we broke up, and I just, you know, I just started doing the deal, and um, and it was really um, hard for me for a while because I was discovering things that I didn't know, like that the dishes that I used also were dirty. I would yell at him about the dishes in the sink. He left, and I still had dirty dishes. How did that happen? And um, and so it was like it was amazing because it forced me to really take responsibility for everything going on in my life. You know, I always took the credit, but gave you the blame. Right? My life would be perfect if you would do this, and um, and that was not the case. And um, ultimately, what happened is um, I began to recover. 
from the effects of alcoholism, and my life changed. I started sponsoring Alateen. Actually, I started sponsoring Alateen very soon after I got into Al-Anon. I probably shouldn't have. I was 23, and sometimes I was a good example, and sometimes I was a warning. And um, But I loved these kids, and they loved me. And I'll tell you what, I love the Alateens. And if you've ever thought about Alateen service, you should totally do it. Because you know why? They tell you you're awesome, like every single time. And... Uh, <laughs> And then the other thing is Al-Anons also say you're awesome. They're like, oh, you're so good to be helping these kids. That's right. It counts as service. I am. I am good to be helping these kids. Look at me. <laughs> but they are, they are so loving. And, and what, uh, what's wonderful is a lot of these kids, they've grown up, and they're in my life today. I've gotten to stand in the wedding of uh, two of my Alateens who've gotten married. And, uh, and two of my Alateens... Uh, fell in love and got married and they started having babies and the oldest one is 14 years old and I am her godmother and uh, and it's a blessing I mean it's really a blessing to to see uh, you know it talks about in the in working with others like you won't want to miss this you won't want to miss this you stick around and there's some amazing gifts so um, so I'll tell you about uh, my life today uh, my life today is really good I am married to um, a wonderful man Normie ish and uh, and we have two little boys who teach me so much and um, you know when, when I was getting nervous I was reminded of a story there's my uh, bigger little guy he's nine now but when he was like three or four on the way to soccer he sees this group of kids they're like 10 11 12 hanging out on the corner and he goes hey those are my friends really yeah I just haven't played with them yet and my husband says to me, like, wouldn't it be nice to live in a world where everybody that you saw, everybody that you met was just a friend you hadn't played with yet? And I was like, yeah. And then it hit me. That's my world. I live in that world because I'm an Al-Anon. I come to these things. You know, I didn't know anybody when I got here, but I knew that it was just friends that I hadn't played with yet, right? And we sat together and we had dinner and we shared a meal and suddenly I was home again. And that's, like, what a blessing to have that. Most of the world doesn't get to have that. Um, I want to tell you the, the biggest story. So I, I move, you know, I'm in California. I'm living with my dad. And we're trying to figure out how to do this. I didn't need a daddy. He's trying to be a daddy. He's trying to, like, take care of things like my car and stuff like that. I've been doing that for a while. And I didn't, I didn't want a daddy. I just wanted my dad. And, um, and I also, you know, I didn't know how to be a daughter, um, to him. I was terrible to my stepfather. Oh my God. And I love this man today. You know, talk about the amends process. Uh, I, when I went to go make amends to my stepdad, uh, I, you know, he's not the most emotive person in the world. And, uh, and so I had my big speech, you know, I had it all figured out. I shared it with my sponsor and I knew exactly what I was going to say. And I, I start out and I said, you know, I've been wanting to talk to you because, um, I was not the kind of stepdaughter that you deserved. And before I could get another word out, he interrupts me and he goes, oh, we've all done things that we regret. I'm glad that we're good now. And then he like turns away. And I was like, but I have more. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, amends don't always turn out the way you want. And, and, uh, but that man is, is, uh, is in my life today. And, and we have a great relationship. And I'm very grateful for that. Um, so anyway, so... You know, I'm trying to figure out, like, how to do this relationship with my dad. And, um, and my sponsor, you know, I'd, he'd make me crazy, and I'd call my sponsor, and I'd fuss about it. And he, she would say, uh, don't worry about what he needs to do to be a better father. You worry about what you need to do to be a better daughter. <sighs> 
fine. And so I would call him, and I would just ask how he was, and, and we would go to movies. We, we would do things where we didn't have to talk, because I didn't really know how to talk to him. So we would go to movies, or we would go to meetings. We'd sit in meetings together. Don't go to meetings with your dad if you plan a 13th step. It's very difficult to do, because he knows these guys, and he's like, no, 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 you shouldn't, no, he's, no, you shouldn't date him. <laughs> but he is really cute, Daddy. Um, and so we, ju- we had this common bond of recovering from the disease of alcoholism. And we could talk about that. We could talk about sponsorship, and we could talk about our higher power, and we could talk um, about the steps. And slowly, a little bit at a time, we began to put this relationship back together. And, you know, this man that I had disowned when I was 15 walked me down the aisle when I got married and, uh, and cried like a baby the whole time, which was great because he was a big, tough cowboy. You know, what is it, like chewing iron and spitting out nails? That was my dad. And he bawled like a baby the whole time. It was so cute. And he was there at the birth of my, at my first son. He was in the hospital with me in the middle of the night. And uh, in 2002, uh, he was diagnosed with chondrosarcoma, which is a very aggressive bone cancer. And, uh, and he's a fighter. And so he fought that disease for five years, quite valiantly, as a matter of fact. And... We had moved to, my husband and I, we had moved to Colorado, and he was still living in California, and I was flying back the, the, after my second son was born, I was flying back like every six weeks to just spend as much time with him, because it was, it was getting close. And uh, one night I was at my Monday night meeting, and I'd been, he was, he was in the hospital again, and I'd been on the phone with the woman that he was married to, and I was, and I kind of felt like, you know, it's hard for me sometimes, because sometimes I can't tell um, if it's God talking to me or if it's fear talking to me, because they both talk to me in the same voice. You know, it's inside my head. It's the same voice. And, and even today, sometimes I have a hard time. So I went to my Monday night meeting, and I was talking with a friend of mine after the meeting, and I said, you know, I kind of feel like I, I need to go to California. And he says, well, if you feel like you need to go, you need to go. And then shortly after that, I was telling another friend uh, that the same feelings, and she says, well, if you feel like you need to go, you need to go. And what I do know is that if two people who weren't talking to each other tell me the same thing, that is God trying to tell me because I don't always hear it the first time. So I was like, okay. So uh, I get in the car. It's like 10 o'clock at night. I get in the car. I'm driving home. Call my husband and said, uh, I think we're going to go to California tonight. So go ahead and start packing. <laughs> and uh, he was like, okay. And he called his boss. I mean, he knew what was going on. And, and we drove for 24 hours straight to get to the hospital. And when we got there, uh, on the way, I had talked to the woman that was married to my dad. And she said, uh, they don't expect him to live another 48 hours. So we got there. We drove uh, 24 hours with a one-year-old and a three-year-old in our car. And I got to the hospital five minutes after visitors' hours. And I went up to the, uh, we're over, and I went up to the security guard. And I was like, we just drove 24 hours straight with a toddler and a baby, and I just really need to see my dad. And he was like, okay, come, come with me. And, uh, and so we went in there. And, um, and my dad, uh, he, he lasted longer than 48 hours. It was 10 more days that I got to spend with him because, again, he's a fighter. And I will tell you that I got to sit with him and tell him that of all the daddies in the world, I was so glad that he was mine. And I got to tell him that I didn't want him to be okay. I I didn't want him to go, but that we would be okay. And he said that he knew that. And, uh, And the day before he died, my husband got to provide him his last meal. It was in and out double double animal style <laughs> and a chocolate shake and uh and when my dad got too weak to hold the glass of water to his lips i was able to hold for him 
and give him a sip of water. You gave that to me. That is not something that I could have done on my own. You gave that to me. And I can't think of any way that I can ever pay that back. And I'm very grateful. I know everybody's handing me tissues. Thank you. This, I, don't, I don't know if you guys have them in, Alan, in AA meetings, but in Al-Anon meetings, there's like 11 boxes of tissues at any, <laughs> truly at any given moment. We never run out. And, uh, and I'm really grateful that I didn't have to make amends to my father at a graveside. I know that that's some people's story, and I'm glad that we have that opportunity, but I'm glad that that's not my story. I'm glad I got to say it to his face. And, uh, and his legacy carries on. There were a lot of people at his funeral talking about how he had helped them. And, uh, <clears throat> and there were people that came uh, to support me within an hour. After, my, after I found out that my dad died, I was staying at my in-laws, and they actually were getting ready to leave town that day. And they were a little hesitant to go, but it was okay because I got on the phone, and within an hour, there were AAs and Al-Anons showing up at the door, and they were bringing food, and they were bringing diapers, and they were bringing hugs, and they were bringing chocolate, and they were going to help me through this time. And, uh, and that's what we do here. You know, we're called Al-Anon family groups because family is our middle name. One of my uh, friends who came to me that day, uh, we're not related, but she's like my sister. And when she was at work, when I called her, and she went into her boss, and she says, I have to go. There's been a death in the family. Because we are. We're family. And um, I want to tell you a little bit about my boys, because they're so wonderful, and they teach me so much, and I love them. They're, they're seven and nine now. And um, <laughs> the, um, they have a human mother. Um, and what that means for me is that sometimes I yell at them and sometimes I yell really, really, really loud. And I don't like that. I've actually, when they were little, um, I yelled at the older one so loud that the little one covered his ears. <laughs> and, um, and I'm not proud of that. You know, I'm not, I'm not up here bragging about that, but I'm up here to tell you that even after 22 years in Al-Anon, I yell at my kids sometimes. And, and there was a, a, a time a few years ago, it was before Christmas, and uh, I was feeling real stressed out, and it was all self-imposed pressure. Um, and I started screaming at my kids because there were toys in the in the family room. Like, there's supposed to be toys in the family room. You got a three-year-old and a five-year-old. I started screaming at my kids, and they're crying, and they're on their, you know, they're walking upstairs carrying their toys up to their room. And I hear the little one say to the bigger one, "Mommy still loves us even when she's mad at us, right?" That did not make me feel better, and. Uh, and I called my sponsor and I said, I can't believe that I did this to my children. And uh, how can I even show my face in a meeting that after, I think I, was, I think I was in 17 years at the time, after 17 years in this program, this is how I, I treat my kids? And she said, imagine how you would treat your kids if you hadn't been coming for 17 years. That's a scary thought, so I keep coming back. And, um, and I was able to go back to them and make amends to them, you know, and ask what I could do to make it right. And I think my, my bigger little guy said, can we do a puzzle? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I had to pay somebody else $1,000. You just want a puzzle? Okay. <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, uh, the, talking about amends, they were, uh, when they were like one and three, my husband was out of town. And he'd been out of town for a few days, and and uh, uh, and it, it's hard to be a single parent. And I was giving them a bath, and the bigger one dumped a bunch of water on top of the little one's head just to make him cry, because that's what brothers do. That's what big brothers do, anyway. And uh, and I was so mad because I was just at the end of my rope, and I was like, ah! 
And I drained the bathtub, and I picked up my, my little guy who's three years old, picked him up by the arms, naked and dripping wet, and took him to his room, put him in there. I said, don't you come out of here. And I shut the door. It was for his protection. Shut the door. <laughs> and then I go, and I, I go back to the baby, and I dry him off and, you know, lotion and diaper and put the pajamas on. And we have a catwalk in between uh, our bedroom and, and uh, the little guy's room. And he must have been lying there looking under the door waiting for me to come because he says, Mama, as soon as I step out of the room, what, Daniel? Are you ready to say you're sorry to me now? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I am. Yes, I am, Daniel. Thank you very much. So, um, I don't know how much time I have. So I'm going to tell you the, the five things that, um, that that lovely woman with the big hair and the blue eyeshadow told me. Um, go to meetings. I have a home group. Uh, and they, it's the Wednesday Night Solid Foundation in Denver on Hampton and Tamarack. And if you ever are in Denver, please come and join us. That meeting is full of the most amazing people that I know. And, um, and we have recovery and we have fellowship and we have parties together and we celebrate and we go to movies and we really support each other. And I haven't had a, um, a crisis like my father dying since I've been in Colorado, but I do know that now I have people that I can call there too. I don't have to be in California to get that kind of love and support. I've got that group there. And, um, and those same, those same women who, when I told them that I was talking at 9.30 in the morning, went, ooh. Um, they also both sent me emails last night and said, I know you're, they, they know me. It's, I, I'm so bad at texting. And uh, uh, one of them was in California, and she sent me a text, and I sent her a reply. And then her reply to my reply was, oh, I'm so proud of you. It only took a day and a half for you to respond. <laughs> so I got emails from them both last night that said, we know you're not going to check, check your uh, texts in the morning, so we want to tell you that we love you and we're with you in spirit. And, uh, and these are our wonderful, wonderful, wonderful friends um, that I have, and I'm, I'm very proud and blessed to be a part of it. Um, I have a sponsor. I have a most amazing sponsor in the world. The, the thing that's wonderful about her is when I call her with a resentment, the first thing that she says to me is, I think they're stupid too. And then she makes me look at my part. <laughs> but it's nice to have somebody who first pounds her fist on the table with me. And, uh, and then she also... Um, she doesn't try to give me all the answers, you know. She always tells me, like, let's just work on the steps. And she'll say things like, I don't know the answer to that, but I think that God does, so let's pray about it. And that's really all I need is somebody to remind me that, that my relationship with my higher power is really going to solve every problem that I have. There was a newcomer in uh, the meeting that said, uh, um, I don't understand all this God stuff because it seems like that the people who have a relationship with God have just as many problems as those of us who don't. Right? Because life is life. But what happens is if I get that relationship with this God that I can turn to and this God that I can trust, then I can tap into an inner resource of power that allows me to match calamity with serenity. And that's what the God piece is for me, is that it, it's, it gives me a, a new process. You know, the, the, the steps for me, it's not even necessarily about recovering from the effects of alcoholism, although that's what it does, but really it's... It's a path of spiritual integrity that if I follow, I get to peel off the layers of my humanity that separate me from my God and from all of you so that I can come and stand with you and stand among my fellows. You know, there's a page in our Courage to Change that talks about being on that ladder. And people are either above me or below me. And it doesn't matter if I'm, uh, you know, I have two forms of judgment. I'm either, either judging you, thinking that you're better than me. And that I'm less than. And that's probably the more common one. And then there's the one where I get a little smug and self-righteous. And uh, actually, that's probably the more common one. 
If I'm going to be honest, you know, I drive down the freeway and anybody going faster than me is a maniac. Anybody going slower than me is a moron, right? So, and that's still, that's still my thinking today. And so, you know, I get on that ladder and really it doesn't matter which way I'm judging you. It's just still a form of separation. It's just me separating you, separating myself from all of you. And that's not who I want to be. That's, I, my job to be here is, is to be of maximum service to my fellow human beings. And so I get to get off that ladder and stand among my fellows. And, um, you know, the, the magic for me really has been in the steps. And, and when, when I'm working with people that I sponsor, we read the promises in the big book. And then there's also something that's it's not like the promises of Al-Anon. If you ask World Service, they don't have any promises. Yes, we do, um, I think. And, and they're in From Survival to Recovery. And there's a page. Some people call them the gifts, and some people call them the promises. And, and it has wonderful things. Like, we will, we will know the vastness of our emotions, but we will not be slaves to them. When I was new, I, I used to go to this meeting. Um, there was a treatment center, and there was this poster on the wall that had, like, all these different smiley faces. And, um, but they were, like, you know, some of them had, like, squiggly mouths, and they had uh, eyebrows pointing down. And they had all these feelings underneath them, like bewilderment and um, anxiety. And I remember looking at it thinking... I don't even know what those are. Embarrassment. And I, I just, I, I came in and I think I was just so numb, you know, or I was angry. And that was really all I could do. I didn't know anything else. And so getting to know the vastness of our, uh, of our emotions. And one of the promises is we will laugh more. Isn't that lovely? This is one of the things that I know. I had a friend in Al-Anon who... Um, uh, she, she passed away in, in 2001, but she was such a funny lady. And she used to say that our sense of humor is one of the first things to disappear in Al-Anon, uh, or in alcoholism, and it's one of the last things to come back in Al-Anon. And she said the reason it's important to know that is if you're going to meetings and there's never any laughter, there's not enough recovery either. And so make sure that there's laughter. And, and, you know, and we're not always laughing. Alcoholism isn't always rainbows and butterflies. Um, so we're not always laughing. But we do really have to find the humor in things. Because life can be hard. My, the, my husband, I married him because he makes me laugh every single day. I feel like nothing else even matters. And I'm really grateful that he's here with me this weekend. And um, my, my littler little guy, a few years ago, he's, he just turned seven. And, um, and they're such funny characters. Uh, a few years ago, we were driving. He was in preschool at the time, and so he and I got to spend a lot of time together because his big brother was in school full-time. And we were driving somewhere, and he goes, Mom, Ray doesn't believe in miracles. We don't know a Ray. Uh, so I thought that was kind of an odd statement. And, uh, and I don't think we had really talked about miracles. And I said, okay. I said, Aiden, do you know what a miracle is? And he paused for a minute, and he says, Yes, it's when you're so happy you want to cry. This is my son, and uh, and he's right. And I feel like t- I feel like my life is a miracle. And my my uh, bigger little guy, shortly after my dad passed away, he's like three years old. The baby's upstairs sleeping, and he's coloring or reading a book or something. And uh, and he lifts up his left leg. My dad, before he died, as a last ditch effort to save his life, had his left leg amputated. My son stops coloring. He lifts up his left leg. He looks at me and he says, I am your dad and I need to give you a hug. And he hops over to me, my three-year-old, and gives me a hug. And I'm floored by that. But what's even more amazing to me is with that happening, I still doubt the power of my God. 
how? How does that happen? How can I live in doubt still? Uh, I heard a, a speaker a long time ago. Uh, it was the Sunday morning spiritual, you know, when we're all, you got to go to the Sunday morning spiritual speaker because we're all raw, you know, and it's just, we're open to things. And he said, is God enough? And everybody's like, yes, absolutely God's enough. Really? Take away your job. Take away your house. Take away your car. Is God still enough? Yeah. Take away your spouse. Take away your children. Is God still enough? Oh. Take away your meetings. Take away the book. Sit on a spot of grass. Is God enough? And I have to say for me today, most of the time, no, I'm not there. I want to be. I want God to be enough. But right now, I still need God with skin on it. <laughs> you know, I still need all of you. And, uh, and the good news is, is that when I don't know if I can make it, when I don't feel like I have um, enough faith and enough belief in my higher power, I have you guys who say, that's all right. God knows the answer. Let's pray about it. And I'll walk through this with you. And I am so grateful to be a part of this program. If you're new, I beg you, please keep coming back. Uh, your life will get different. <laughs> and uh, thank you for being a part of my journey.